0: This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Put a bird on it. I'm squishing your head. I got a fever and the only prescription is more cowbell. These are, of course, all passages from James Joyce's modernist masterpiece, Ulysses. That is a joke. These are lines from beloved sketch comedy programs, past and present, shows that live in our hearts and minds but rarely get the scholarly treatment they warrant. Enter Dr. Nick Marks, associate professor of media and visual culture at Colorado State University, whose book, Sketch Comedy, Identity, Reflexivity in American Television, came out from the University of California Press in 2019. Thank you for joining me today, Nick. Thank you for having me, Annie. So let's just start out with a little introduction. How did you become a scholar of media studies uh, and a comedy studies professor? Uh,
1: Just a burning interest to know more about and study media text, films, television shows that uh, other folks hadn't paid enough attention to. In the case of today, it's sketch comedy, but when I was an undergraduate almost 20 years ago, I found myself constantly drawn to funny things. I liked watching sketch comedy shows and sitcoms and didn't always find a ton written about them, either from a scholarly perspective or even the sort of casual pop press books were uh, not enough to satisfy my curiosity. I will say, too, that I was uh, fortunate to study with uh, the film scholar David Boardwell as an undergraduate, uh, someone who's brilliance and, and generosity to, to students knows no bounds and he really supported me answered a lot of my questions stoked my curiosity to pursue uh, graduate studies so I did that at the University of Texas in Austin then returned to Wisconsin for my PhD and uh, wrote a dissertation that became the book we'll talk about today uh, so uh, had just discovered nobody really wrote about sketch comedy it's history how the shows themselves work uh, most of the writing was about kind of uh, greatest hits, right? The The list of the 100 greatest sketches ever. And that was a great starting point, but I wanted to know more about the sort of political import of sketch comedy as well.
0: Your book is a really important intervention into this study, and it centers a form that rarely, as you're mentioning, gets kind of... Um a rigorous academic treatment. Um, As someone myself who's written on both sketch and sitcoms, sketch really doesn't, I've come across far less literature on it. Sitcoms have really, by comparison, gotten um, a ton of attention uh, in terms, and not just in terms of the field of television studies, but also sort of as a network prestige object. It feels like sitcoms really get positioned with you know quality dramas as kind of like the crown jewel of any net channel or network and sketch comedy is sort of like to fill in the blanks and sometimes I think television studies also put sketches like a way to fill in some gaps but without really giving it in-depth um, sort of love and care. So uh, why do you think that is sort of as an institutional, an academic institutional object, and a commercial institutional object. Why is sketch the ugly stepchild?
1: (laughs) Well, I think you nailed it uh, with your early description of it as filling in gaps. So I'll start with the institutional perspective on the show. Sitcoms are prime time. Sketch is late night. So by virtue of its schedule positioning, uh, fewer people watch sketch comedy overall than have seen, of course, Friends and Cheers and The Cosby Show on and on. There's also the question of longevity. Sitcoms are made to run multi-seasons. The the episodic structure of them means they can sort of uh, start and restart with every new episode. So all of your favorite sitcoms that are in syndication have five, six, uh, nine, ten seasons, right? Sketch comedies, as I describe in the book, tend to be fleeting. They're, They're fraught with tension between performers and networks very often with Uh, fights between performers themselves for screen time. They tend not to have as long of a shelf life and make it to syndication like sitcoms do. So there's just fewer of them around to study. There's fewer people watching them. There's fewer people spending time with them, as opposed to folks who've been watching Cheers all these years. In terms of their treatment by the Academy, uh, I think that's a a tricky question too. I I don't have a, a really good answer for it other than to note that uh, sketch has its roots in kind of body vaudevillian, lowbrow humor, stretching all the way back to its theatrical roots. So does sitcom, of course. But sitcoms, the much more sort of familiar middlebrow, entrenched thing that even your colleague down the hall who might not watch TV is likelier to watch, right? They're likelier to be familiar with Seinfeld. So I think just from a sheer familiarity standpoint, both within and outside of the Academy sketch is just kind of you, you, you likened it to a, a stepchild, but, uh, I I'd say as a middle child, myself, it's a forgotten middle child. It's kind of hanging out on the periphery of, of comedy studies. Every once in a while we get a new one that pops up that people pay attention to, but for the most part, it's, you know, the occasional belly aching about how Saturday night live isn't as good as it was when, when I was growing up. So I really wanted to turn, the same uh, critical attention to this somewhat neglected genre uh, that the sitcom and and other romantic comedies, um, genres like that have been getting for years.
0: Absolutely. Um, I think I wonder if there's also, as someone who looks at like, Early television, there, I actually had a really hard time finding total episodes or runs of sketch comedy shows for the kind of modularity you talk about that certain sketches were preserved and other ones weren't. Uh, so it would be hard to see a whole episode, never mind the whole run of a whole series. And I think that if you are um, sort of an analytical person, that that sort of lack of a complete set might bug you. It's harder to study something if you don't get to see the televisual flow and you haven't gotten to watch every episode because you know you can only catch the sketches that someone thought to save. Um, that a,
1: that's a great point. Unless you're fortunate enough to have access to original archival recordings and, and see it, like you said, in the flow of a, of a broadcast evening, copies of sitcoms are much more widely available, whereas we tend to sample Sketch both in an historical sense, you know, just one off sketches from Ernie Kovacs or whatever are available online, but the full hours long broadcast that these folks um, did their experimentation within, for the most part are kind of lost to the sands of uh, live TV
0: but this conversation, we are we are staunch defenders <laughs> of both sketch comedy and stepchildren and middle children, just all the children. We love the, children and we love comedy here. All the children, at, yes. At my particular, I do not speak for all of New Books Network, but probably I do on that. Um, <laughs> Before we get into the argument of your particular of this particular book, I wanted to just uh, preface that you have edited two books, um, sort of around this topic, one an anthology on Saturday Night Live, and one a Comedy Studies reader. And how do you feel like editing those books before you started this full, you know, solo authored monograph prepare you or shape um, the process? That sounds like from going from dissertation to book and editing those those books along the way.
1: Yeah, it uh, taught me about what people wanted to hear about in in terms of comedy, sketch comedy, and what they were maybe a little less interested in. Um, it uh, certainly showed me how the the kind of uh, how things are made in academic publishing. Right, I, I learned how to sort of work with uh, editors, with the press, with different contributors. Uh, I had to let go of some of the. Uh, control freakiness of of my own personality and let other folks explore these topics according to their own research interests. Um, but really, I pursued Matt and I pursued those two projects as a way to sort of um, stake our claim to some of this uh, research territory we hadn't yet come across in our early teaching careers. A volume for undergraduates, and that's why we decided to pursue the Comedy Studies Reader. We wanted to get in a undergrad classroom and introduce students to uh, Bakhtin and Linda Hutchian and Umberto Eco and folks that um, uh, with with advanced degrees might take as as common knowledge. Um, At the same time that we wanted to sort of update some of these ideas with modern day case studies or what would have been modern day case studies five years ago. Uh, So keeping that um, combination alive of sort of High theory, borrowed from literature and from early film studies, um, uh, with more recent case studies, sort of drove my interest to develop a, a full-fledged book around sketch.
0: Great. Well, then uh, let's let's get into it. Um, in the book, you coined this term, reflexive flexibility, I wanted to say that, right? Flexibility (laughs) uh, to connect the modular and malleable form of sketch comedy to the genre's political and commercial uses. Can you say more about this concept? And what I really love about it is that it allows you to connect these very different shows across from the early days of the sort of the the network era through what's called the multi-channel transition or the sort of explosion of cable channels in the 80s and 90s into our present, what people, uh, what Amanda Lotts and ever called the post-network era. So how does reflexive flexibility sort of show a continuity across time? And what is it?
1: Yeah, uh, you've framed it really well there in saying I uh, wanted to capture the continuity of sketch-like shows from early television, some of which you've written about, I know, and through to the, the present day with things on Netflix and elsewhere. Um I, I have to be totally honest and admit that it's at least 20% kind of a totally made up thing that the, the press urges you to do when you're making a scholarly monograph like this. It's got to have a, a a term or a hook that other people can sort of identify and end quote. Um, but in this case, the the more I toyed with it, the more. I developed um, my textual analyses along the lines of of proving this is reflexive flexibility. This is how it works. Okay, so two parts. Sketch comedy is obsessed with itself. To uh, a certain extent, all television is reflexive, right? It talks about itself as a medium, as a cultural uh, expression with a history and with a sort of lore that they invoke. Uh, But I make the case that few other genres are as obsessed with their own lineage, with their own performativity as sketch shows and sketch performers are. Uh, One of my all-time favorite sketches is uh, the pre-taped call-in show from Mr. Show. If you know this sketch, it is David Cross as a Haggard um, local cable TV uh, host who is hosting a uh, call-in show that is pre-taped. And so he has to correct people who call in that it's next week's thing they're calling in about, not this week's one, because they're taping this week's episode. It's kind of convoluted in that very 90s postmodern way. But the the more that the sketch uh, unfolds, the deeper and deeper you get into layers of self-referentiality, of sort of postmodernist uh, cloying and turning back on itself to convince Viewers at home, oh no, this is the joke. Now, this is the joke over here. So, it's very rarely kind of uh, engaging with things around it, uh, and it's much more sort of navel gazing in its uh, comedic construction. Uh, The second part of that flexibility uh, refers to the industrial use of sketch comedy. So, I describe how TV networks, producers have used sketch to plug holes in their schedules, to launch rebrandings, to um, showcase high-profile stars in a much more sort of nimble uh, t- a time without uh, as much development, without as much cost, and um, human resource power as you would for a, an hour-long drama or a sitcom where things are much more tightly scripted and sort of uh, planned out over the course of a season. So it, it kind of refers to that uh, sort of make-it-up-as-you-go-along uh, logic that executives have to abide by when, oh, they've got to cancel a show mid-season, or this show isn't quite working out. Let's see if we can bolster it with a, a new show starring, uh, you know, famous comedian X will come on and and give our lineup a refresh. So the more that I kind of threaded that across the historical case studies, um, the more I saw those two elements at play: a sort of self-obsession combined with uh, the industrial side of TV saying we can do uh, whatever we want to with this genre and plug all these different holes with it.
0: Including it seems like, so the network sort of promoting the network identity or promoting something very sort of a branding opportunity, which makes it all the more sort of painful how sketch is so often treated as like sort of low priority, low budget, but it is a place that you can really brand and you can really like communicate the network's imperatives. Um Like you, I was thinking when you were saying that there, it's very navel-gazing, like you can't do in a sitcom where Sam and Diane would not keep breaking the fourth wall to be like, remember, I'm a character, NBC. Um, But (laughs) there's all that, sometimes very clunkily in shows like SNL, they'll do that. They'll um, kind of be flexible in that direction. Um, But let's start, ugh, I hate when I do this. Let's start at the very beginning. Let's follow because your book is structured historically. Um, You look at how sketch comedy was on television from the very beginning of television with shows uh, helmed by Vaudeo stars, which your earlier point about vaudeville, sort of the vaudeville to video career pipeline, sometimes with a layover in radio, uh, that you see in the early 50s with Jack Benny and Milton Berle. Uh, But you focus on the Colgate Comedy Hour as an archetypal example of how sketch is flexible, malleable, and sort of mobile, and that helped to establish network television as an institution, uh, which, you know, the networks turn around and sort of put limits on the form that made it. Um, I don't know if you would call that being a victim of your own success, but something like that. Um, can you talk about that in terms of both Colgate or, you know, the later 1960s shows that you you sort of posit against each other, Smothers Brothers and Laugh-In as sort of political satires
1: that followed? Sure. Yeah. As, as I'm uh, sure you know, Annie, the uh, sort of 40s, 50s, early television era is defined by uh, liveness, by uh, cycling through stars onto these variety type formats uh, to uh, essentially to, to plug holes in the schedule, right? To rebroadcast, say, New York City uh, play productions to, to showcase the talent that's based then in New York and Los Angeles. What you began to see as the, the 50s carried on, though, is a certain demand for uh, routinized production, for more predictable audience viewing habits at the behest of sponsors and their advertising agencies, and the sort of live um, comedy show, variety show aesthetic that these Vaudeo shows, like Colgate, were ultimately unsustainable. Uh, They essentially ran out of gas. They ran out of the sort of um, original scenarios Uh, that had to be written anew each week, much like Saturday Night Live does as one of the only shows that does this um, on a a weekly basis. Uh, So what you saw were the kind of emergence of recurring characters, uh, hosts that would return semi-frequently to portray the same type of scenario across weeks that would eventually provide the basis for the situation comedy, right? The, The stable situation where the family is the same we use the same sort of three sets the workplace the home and the kitchen say that could map out and make stable the production routines to film not just one live episode every week and everybody gets exhausted and has to do it all over again the following week but things that could be broken out into um, uh, different shots could be written by uh, teams over the, the course of the summer months so that they could be shot during the, the broadcast year, right? Um, so that this formula eventually becomes TV's economic mandate for comedy, right? The sitcom quickly kind of takes over as the preferred primetime genre uh, to a certain extent. Of course, we've got variety shows that uh, carry on. Um what begins to happen in the course of the 1960s with the shows you mentioned there, The Smothers Brothers and laugh is that these shows variety persists, right? From Ed Sullivan to The Smothers Brothers and laugh but with a, a creeping kind of um, resistance to be as playful, experimental, and maybe as politically uh, incendiary as uh, later iterations of it would be. So. Uh, very famously, the Smothers Brothers uh, brushed up against network censors for some of their kind of countercultural references to smoking marijuana and uh, politically activist type uh, humor and, and speeches. Laffin was the, the kind of um, truer vaudeville leftover from the Smothers Brothers. That was a little more sort of classically Vegas boozy jokes about old white men chasing women around. Goldie Hawn, of course, was a a, a laughing, uh, frequent, um, uh, recurring actor. Uh, But in both cases, those shows became much more sort of routinized in their production, scripted, recorded, broadcast, right? They weren't the sort of one-off live shows that Colgate was uh, just a decade or two before.
0: Thank you. I... One part of the – I love this book and one thing I really enjoyed in this – the chapter about the 50s TV uh, was reading sort of that secondhand embarrassment for uh, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. And that kind of tension behind the scenes seems to me like one of the sort of corollary narratives of the sketch comedy is that there's um, that kind of improv comedy aggression or the the sort of booze-soaked – hostility of the Vegas show that permeates a lot of sketch TV um, and is part of Mike Berbiglia's great Don't Think Twice movie. Right. And by great, I mean, I never want to see it again, because it feels <laughs> incredibly apt. But there is yeah. a kind of sort of I don't know how to explain this communal feeling that we're all in it together that you get in these early shows, but also when, whenever you get Martin and Lewis together, there's that cringe factor that yeah. like maybe one of them is a lot more attached than the other. I won't say <laughs> yeah. which is which, but everybody who <laughs> knows knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, and I think that that segues us into the kind of competition and the collegiality of, um, the 1970s, and specifically your primary case study, mo- maybe the most famous sketch comedy show in, in the United States, which is Saturday Night Live. Um, SNL, from the beginning, sort of branded itself as this youthful, not ready for primetime players sort of ensemble. But as you write, the show is structured around the breakout star, which is not only sort of um, a raced and gendered category, but it's also one that potentially throws a wrench in that kind of warm and fuzzy um, we're all on the same team vibe that a show like that is counting on. So um, can you tell us sort of about how and who breaks out on SNL from when it started to even into the present? And what does that kind of branching out uh, mean for sketch comedy on television or sort of the sketch aesthetic, even in film?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And and SNL is such a long and messy uh, case study to make any grand generalization about, but I wanted to revisit those early years uh, precisely because nobody had really talked about, as you mentioned, the sort of race and gendered components about how people break out from the show. And I trace it all the way back really to the show's development with Lauren Michaels and his explicit overt generational appeal to baby boomers to say, we are different. We are not what came before. This is uh, something that's gonna be separate from what you're used to. And I can't help but imagine that, um, that, that vibe, that philosophy filtered down to everything the show did in those first five years and has been doing ever since. We're SNL, we're different, act that way. So this has led to, of course, first in the case of Chevy Chase, the desire to declare oneself as different, as the star of the show, even as he is part of a an ensemble, right? So his uh, famous declaration on Chevy Chase and you're not is this sort of self-definitional turn to say, yeah, 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 I know I'm part of these not ready for primetime players, but let's face it, I'm the most uh, charming and handsome and, and good looking. And let's, yes, let's face it, a smug asshole of them all, even though there was plenty of virulent behavior being uh, levied by the, the likes of John Belushi and misogyny happening behind the scene, as lots of folks have documented. Um, I wanted also to, to turn critical attention to folks like Garrett Morris and think through how certain sort of um, racially representational practices were available to him and were sort of foreclosed on, on other aspects. Um, dynamics that would continue across the show as stars like Eddie Murphy and and others emerged into the uh, 80s and 90s. So depending on which era of SNL you grew up with and and most fondly remembered, your your breakout star will will vary by those um, years. So I'll see if I can date myself by saying that my sort of most fondly remembered uh, breakout stars of the show are boy that that early 90s uh, crew of Chris Farley and Adam Sandler and who's oddly having like a a weirdly sort of revisionist no actually Sandler is a genius kind of career which I'm I, I tend to, to kind of agree with with uh, uncut gems and 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 other movies but um by and large it's it's white men right it is these very uh very Uh, People who are already very well positioned to be stars outside of the show kind of center themselves, center their bodies, their voices, literally in uh, the stage. Sometimes they do this in uh, gendered and raced ways behind the scenes as well. But over and over again, we see the kind of white guy of the moment cycling through to create more time for himself uh, in monologues, sometimes as weekend update host, and eventually going on to make. Uh, utterly forgettable movies like The King of Staten Island and now some awful project that he's developing with Judd Apatow where he's going to play himself. I'm, I'm talking about Pete Davidson, right? I in know the, who you're
0: talking <laughs> no, about. In but... case the
1: listener is... Uh, Was he not yeah, playing so...
0: himself in The King of Staten Island?
1: No, no. He's going to play
0: more himself? He's
1: going to play okay. more himself. If there is ever a, a sign that this breakout star is doomed to... um not succeed as much as, say, a, a Mike Myers or, or, or somebody else. It's that star like Chevy Chase, like Pete Davidson, who only knows how to play themselves. Those are the folks who I think make the least uh, successful movie stars, whereas the ones like oh Kristen Wieg and, and Will Ferrell and others who can kind of play characters, who know how to do a bit of acting, are the ones who tend to have more success beyond the show.
0: Well, I'm going to put myself in a long line. <laughs> of glamorous women and say, you're being too hard on Pete
1: Davidson.
0: <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, but, you know, I think he has plenty of, of, of female defenders out there. I don't need to become one. But I actually, I think when I think of the sort of branch out mm-hmm. SNL movies, and now I guess I get to date myself too, like the spinoffs are ones like, you know... Um, Night at the Roxbury or yeah. something like actual sketch or super mm-hmm. was it Superstar, the one Superstar, with Mary yep. Catherine Gallagher. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and paths. you write about that sort of, oh yeah. That one I <laughs> cannot imagine is going to get a lot of play anymore. um But uh, some have, have aged better than others. Some were not ever good. Um, and some are both, both didn't age well and were bad then. Um, but you do say that there's like something to be, Sort of really thought about and recovered from these kinds of spin off that sort of the sketch joke structure almost or the kind of reflexive flexibility. So, what would you say is like a, an SNL movie or a, a breakout SNL star who has made the jump? And when we're saying Adam Sandler, I feel like you can't say uncut gems. That's not fair. That doesn't count. Like,
1: <laughs> well, I, I really like Click. Uh, some okay. of the I'm. Uh, yeah unironically
0: un- <laughs> his- sorry i gave him a look listeners at home i gave him a look about click
1: <laughs> please, oh, no. please don't please don't assume that i'm just like this uh weird adam sandler but I-, I would say some oh, I of the some adam
0: sandler picks but it wouldn't have been click it's just that's okay. that's okay some
1: of the uh, well there are two categories of of snl movies right there are the literal sketches coneheads and uh wayne's world and others that have been turned into uh feature length you know, versions of the sketch. And then there are the movies that are much more familiar to us that are the uh, things structured around a SNL star's uh, sort of star persona. So Anchorman is like the right. uh, exemplar of this. So Will Ferrell takes his sort of like absurdist 70s character and you create a movie around it. The thing that I uh, that always bothered me about the way people evaluated those films was they would say... Uh, it's just a sketch stretched out to feature length, right? There, there's no story. It's just a bunch of things that kind of begin and end in the span of four to five minutes like sketches do. But I make the case in the book that that's the point, that that is part of the pleasure of watching these things is that folks bring their extra textual knowledge of Will Ferrell to Step Brothers, and they see him kind of performing as SNL character actor Will Ferrell at the same time that they see him uh, performing alongside John C. Riley in this new sort of context. So the the idea that um, these sketch-like movies are kind of less than or aren't as funny, aren't as good as proper uh, feature-length comedies that are are just their own self-contained film universes never really held any water to me. I, I always wanted to sort of hold both in my head the pleasure of this star's persona from when they were a sketch comedy actor and now their translation of it to the screen, that to me is an uh, additive joy, not something that undercuts my experience of watching them on film.
0: I, agree. I think Bridesmaids is a personal favorite Absolutely. of mine that feels like you know. I think that some, enough of the sort of sw- enough has been switched out. You have some actors that are SNL, some that are like SNL adjacent, like Melissa McCarthy. Yeah. But it's funny to me that if there had been like a a diarrhea. <laughs> Bridal salon sketch on SNL crit- critics would probably say, Oh, that's so disgusting. But in a movie like Bridesmaids are like, it's feminist genius. So like that, really context matters a lot, I think, in in when we think about what's funny and where where it's highbrow subversive and where it's like middle brow formula, I guess.
1: That that is such a great example that the diarrhea scene from Bridesmaids, if something like that had already been on SNL, that would have been critiqued as something, uh, yeah, body and, and redundant with something on TV already, but because we have it in this kind of quasi-original film packaging, people celebrated it. I mean, I, I love that movie, and I think, again, part of the joy is knowing that Kristen Weig's kind of, you know, her multi-character-based persona is activated, in that that setting, right? She's both Annie. Uh, her, her character mm-hmm. is Annie, right? Yes. Her writing partner is Annie Mummel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, same thing with Barb and Star, right? Another that was maybe my favorite movie of twenty twenty one. The the joy of knowing that she was this kind of uh, I don't know how to describe her persona really the 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 volatile maybe loose cannon e um, erupting just beneath the surface uh, kind of a uh, uh, woman about to cause trouble on the scene combined with that new scenario of uh, the world that Bridesmaids and that Barb and Star creates again to me is a a thing that most viewers hold together in their heads and that's additive and it's not just like I can't think about this movie without remembering SNL and it's a distraction and I don't like it
0: absolutely Um, well we're gonna I grew up watching Saturday Night Live I think I was watching a lot of the ones that you were uh, Mm -hmm. talking about with you know Adam Sandler and uh, David Spade and Chris Farley being like the mall girls and stuff like that. And uh, but I will admit. Uh, that I sort of generally, she missed the state. I didn't watch the state. I think I was just a little too young. Yeah. Uh, and now I tried watching it and I'm a little too old. <laughs> so I missed it, uh, which is fine. Uh, but it's on Paramount Plus. So I got to watch a little bit of it and I am very comfortably not comfortable with the whole Gen X thing. But something that I learned from your chapter is that this kind of anti-establishment, anti-consumerist Gen X uh, category is um, kind of, Network generated uh, sort of this like big inside self-effacing joke uh, that is like we're talking about with the breakout stars of Saturday Night Live, also a product of race, uh, gender, class and in the case of commercial, some sort of commercial imperatives like who MTV or Viacom is like going to sell to this week. It's always the same people. Mm-hmm. Um, so can we talk through the contradiction uh, of making an anti-capitalist, anti-conformity show that can sell to a big audience uh, and how it played out on the state, both the like interesting anecdotes you've offered about like the behind the scenes drama with the, um, Comedians. I'm just gonna name a few for people who haven't seen the state because I think it's a little bit more obscure than SNL. Mm-hmm. So like Dean uh, Ken Marino, mm-hmm. Joe Truglio from Brooklyn Nine Nine, mm-hmm. Michael Ian Black, Thomas Lennon. He's one I think he was my favorite on the show. Um, and it started on MTV and it failed when it moved to CBS, which tells you something about it. But they sort of had problems behind the scenes, and some of that came into the comedy and the sort of Middle finger sketches that they put on their show.
1: Yeah, the the state is for, for folks unfamiliar. It, it's worth going back and sampling, but it's a it's a curious historical artifact. Um, it is a, a kind of case study in Generation X cultural expression. It is defiantly kind of f you to the man. You know that people look uh, uh, are, are dressed in the sort of '90s MTV house style of Uh, kind of middle parts and flannel and uh, baggy jeans, the the things that we associate with grunge and and Gen X, but the um, sort of overt uh, attempt by MTV and producers of the show to make this thing appeal to this new youth audience. So by the late 80s, uh, early 90s, uh, the baby boomers in positions of power in the creative industries were seeing themselves slip out of the youth demographic, usually you know 12 to 24 or the sort of 18 to 30, depending on broadcast or cable. Um, so they needed to identify the new thing they were going to sell to. Uh, what was this? Well, we don't quite know. It's got this kind of amalgam of anti-authoritarianism and uh, not authoritarianism, just uh, they were anti-authority, anti-the man, right? It was all the ethos we ascribed to. Uh, 90s and and grunge music. And that was very much the uh, defining comedic voice of the state. They were hyper ironic, they were hyper self referential. Uh, I describe in the book a recurring character by the name of Louie. This was somebody that MTV requested the show produce with the hopes of eventually spitting him off into his own movie universe, in much the same way Mike Myers had done with Wayne's World the year before. And instead of creating a recurring character with a catchphrase that they could use across multiple episodes of the States, this character, Louie's catchphrase was, I want to dip my balls in it. Um, so very sort of crass and masculinist, of course, but the way they got around any kind of repercussion from MTV and from censors was to have Ken Marino, who played Louis, holding a pair of golf balls in his hands. And he would very prominently wave them around and say, oh, the... Punch bowl over there, I wanna dip my balls in it. uh, But the the point, very obviously, was for the cast members of the state to say, F you to MTV, try making a movie out of this character, right? You're you're not gonna be able to spin this character off with the catchphrase, like, I wanna dip my balls in it. So, this um, uh, tug of war between what the network thought it wanted out of the state and what the comedians actually wanted to do. Continuously manifested in these defiant, screw you, screw the man, we're not going to take any orders from the the network suits kind of thing. Uh, So much so that when um, their production cycle ended at MTV and they tried to make a jump to CBS in the fall of 1995, uh, the entire pilot episode they made, so this one-off Halloween special they produced, Was centered around how they were already planning on being canceled by CBS. As I describe in the book, the very opening sketch um, begins with all 11 cast members of the state being hung in effigy on the CBS soundstage. And they go through this very morbid number about how CBS already hates us. They're going to bury us on the schedule. They're never going to give us a chance to succeed. So it was this weird, sort of like self fulfilling thing of like well are, are, are you guys ever going to give your show a chance do you, do you want this show to succeed for a wider broadcast audience or are you going to continually affect this oppositional screw you we don't want to be successful persona um, as, as I kind of described in the book that was the Gen X ethos in a nutshell right sort of tripping over its own impulse to be defiant and oppositional uh, in lieu of longevity and and long-term success.
0: Another disclaimer, no disrespect to Gen (laughs) Gen X um, from my hand. Some of my favorite, some of my favorite comedians are Gen X, but, um, but yeah, it does feel like the state doesn't maybe age as well as some of the other uh, shows that you write about. Would you say just a quick one-off question before we move into your last uh, body chapter, which is Okay. The State or Mr. Show, which is the, like, sort of, do you think is the superior Gen X sketch comedy show uh, as a viewer from 2022?
1: 2022? Uh, The the State, no, 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 I'm sorry. The uh, the, Mr. Show, 100 times out of 100, is the thing I return to the most and laugh at the most. Had a a similar kind of defiant oppositional uh, um, Gen X ethos but it was like funny over and over again. It had quotable sort of uh, inventive televisual ideas. The, the state always seemed kind of um, oh, rushed, uh, let's say. Like it, it wasn't as carefully sort of thought through what its comedic voice was. You know, it was an 11 person crew. So I think there was some sort of internal negotiation about what was going to end up on, on air that week. Uh, but Mr. Show is absolutely a kind of all-time sketch comedy show for me. It's one of the things that initially got me interested in writing and thinking more about it.
0: Yeah. Uh, Mr. Show, which starred Bob Odenkirk and David Cross, and they were the two sort of masterminds of this of the show. I've also mm-hmm. been revisiting that. Uh, it's also featured in your book. Mm-hmm. Um, it was on HBO, so it didn't have commercial breaks. And I think that was really an important shaping force of it, which makes you feel like, you know, when you say that the state is interrupted, I mean, it was literally it rushed, it was like literally interrupted by commercial breaks. Mm-hmm. Whereas like this, the movement between sketches and Mr. Show is so interesting, because there's no commercial breaks, it feels like they have these trippy moments where like you zoom in on the TV that they're watching oh. at the end of one sketch, and you start another one. I feel like that's still I still see that in sketch now that kind of um, sense that you're getting immersed in a whole universe remind me of a Kroll Show or something yep. like that. Feeling of moving between sketches is in itself uh, part of the joke.
1: That's exactly right. Their position on HBO allowed them to take more of those formal risks, both in being, you know, cussing more and getting away with more. But they tinkered with the medium a little bit more uh, in ways that certainly has precedent in, in things like Ernie Kovacs and some of the folks from early television. But I just think that show, even though it was on for probably the same number of episodes and, and number of seasons as The State, just was so much more full of ideas and knew where to go with them, um, at least more so than a, a show like The State did.
0: Yeah. Um, I agree. I want, But um, The State, I, I feel like What was really important in your argument about the state was sort of demonstrating the pressures and the problems of that multi-channel transition because you know the state can move to cbs from mtv because they're all owned by the same corporate parent which is viacom uh trying to sort of fill up their channels with everything and trying to like you know bring something from the minor leagues of mtv to cbs but not not wholeheartedly. Um, and your last chapter kind of looks at that post-network problem. Um, not really a problem, but sort of problematic and also full of potential. And you look at Keen Peel and Inside Amy Schumer as two Comedy Central shows. Again, we haven't left Viacom. Um, and the flexible industrial uses of these shows to kind of expand uh, Comedy Central's core audience of young white men without losing the young white men and that sort of the modularity and the excerptability of sketch comedy was kind of how they did it. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah. So for much of its history, Comedy Central is the South Park network, right? The Tosh.0, the man show uh, network. They are explicit and overt in their appeal to uh, young straight and often white men. What began to happen over the course of the 2010s was the competition for that audience increased. Other cable networks started to program comedy that you know kind of cut into Comedy Central's corner. And so they had to at least uh, pretend to expand their audience beyond that core audience. So uh, they sought out and developed shows by women comedians and women executives. So Inside Amy Schumer, uh, Broad City are their two most sort of successful ones. Uh, and then Key and Peele, of course, was the 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 other after a long line of other you know black starring sketch comedies like Chappelle and 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 others preceding it, but uh, even though those shows were very sort of transgressive, overt in their uh, oppositionality in the sketches themselves, right? So I think Key and Peele's brilliant, and there's lots of sort of very kind of uh, black cultural expressions in the in the humor there. And even Amy Schumer, when it's at its best, has this sort of um, ability to voice uh, post-feminism's contradictions. She's very good at kind of observing what's bullshit about the women can have it all moment and portraying that in a funny way. Even as those shows were being transgressive, the network kind of constrained those transgressions and marketed them in a way that made sure uh, its core audience of, of young men knew Look, guys, we're, we got to put these chicks up on screen for a minute. You know, we, we know we're going to get you back to Tosh laughing at uh, whatever in just a moment, but bear with us. It wasn't quite that crude, of course. But they tried to market, to package these shows in ways that didn't alienate that audience in the same, at the same time that they tried to make attempts to reach uh, young women, to reach more black viewers, and so on. What I think, um, uh, changes about the sort of post network environment, the fact that many people are accessing these uh, sketch comedies on uh, tablets, on computer screens, right? They're just watching standalone sketches instead of the, the shows themselves and the flow of Comedy Central's evening, is some of that uh, context gets lost. Some of the uh, both critique, the bigger critique of the show, when you watch a sketch unmoored from the rest of the program, kind of gets muddled. And some of Comedy Central's control over who's who's watching and under what circumstances also uh, gets lost in the, the, the sort of digital distribution as well.
0: Well, I want to ask you a few sort of like, this is like the deleted scenes or the sure. blooper reel of this. I sort of just outside the purview of this book. And the first one is just for recommendations. You uh, admit you're a fan You can invest as much. You're a fan of sketch comedy in addition to being an expert. So are there any personal ones that you love that you weren't allowed, like weren't not allowed, but you didn't have a space to talk about in the book uh, that you watch often and maybe that our audience would like to hear about, would like to get a recommendation?
1: Yeah. So two things. Uh, One of them came up as I was finishing uh, editing the book. I think you should leave sketch uh, calico cut pants. I think is one of the the best standalone sketches in uh, TV sketch comedy history. Um, The the beats that it goes through, the different sort of surprises and payoffs that it provides at the end. It's very absurdist. So not everybody's um, cup of tea, but it's very much in a a Mr. Show type of vein. Um, The second one came along after I was finishing the book as well. And that's the Black Lady Sketch Show on HBO. Also another um, just... Brilliantly acted, uh, scripted, classic sketch show that takes full advantage of the HBO lack of commercial breaks, uh, freedom to go to places that broadcast shows can't go to at all. And it's very much in the same vein as something like uh, Key and Peele would have been on Comedy Central.
0: Awesome. You know, a show that I don't think gets enough credit was Alternatino. Did you ever see that? No. It was Comedy Central, and it was really a vehicle for Arturo Castro, who you might know from. Mr. Corman on a- Apple TV, but maybe more from Silicon Valley. Oh, Broad City. He was, yeah, he was on Broad City. Um, and that was really good. But I think that it got caught up a little bit in that kind of the transition to Paramount Plus from CBS All Access and COVID. And somehow it just didn't get any more seasons. But it's all it's kind of a hybrid of a sitcom and a sketch show because he's playing himself interstitially with these sketches where he shows all he can do. I like yeah, that. I'll one. Have to check that out. But I, I love your recommendations, and I, I respect, I respect your restraint in not trying to explain. I think you should leave now because it's an impossible, it's an impossible comedic task. If you told people what happens in it, it would not sound, um, it would sound a little like nightmarish, like the scene where he's in that big foam suit in the mall. Like you're like, it's funny, but yeah, I, you know, if, you if have you to are... see it to believe it.
1: If you are an online person, like if you're on Twitter a lot and you are aware Mm -hmm. of and consume memes, it's worth checking out all of I Think You Should Leave just to be aware of like the hot dog meme and uh, Mm -hmm. yeah, others. the episodes are only like 10 minutes long too, so you can burn through them in a day.
0: And with all the references to Mr. Show and his uh, new memoir just coming out, Bob Odenkirk has a great sketch and I think you should leave now that seems like to encapsulate all that sort of goofy and sad about bob odenkirk he it's like a perfect cameo for him i think um bob odenkirk if you're listening we'd love to have you on the show (laughs) um so as we wind down you write in your conclusion about how the genre of sketch comedy has given you uh, as many experiences of joyful unity with others wholly unlike me um as I presume any other genre, but, uh, your next book co-authored by with Matt, uh, Sankiewicz, is called, that's not funny how the right makes comedy work for them. It's coming out in May. Congratulations. Thanks. How is the feeling of joyful unity holding up in the year <laughs> of right? The second <laughs> whatever year we're in anymore, I don't know.
1: That's a, a great question. I, I tried to end the sketch comedy book on a, a a positive note of joyful unity when so much of the book was about uh, fighting and tension and fragmentation. Uh, I can't do the same with this new book. This uh, The new book, That's Not Funny, is all about uh, political disagreement and how uh, the right has taken up comedy in a way that is politically productive for their causes in much the same way that we on the left have thought, oh, The Daily Show is going to You know, stick it to Rupert Murdoch and Fox News and all these good liberal comedians. They're the ones who are winning the politics war for us. Um, So, yeah, we kind of make the case that eh, things aren't uh, turning out as well. And part of the reason they haven't been is that uh, right wing comedians like Joe Rogan, like Greg Gutfeld, Stephen Crowder, uh, Gavin McInnes and others uh, have figured out how to be funny. It may not be funny to the left, but it is a brand of humor that attracts especially young men to their programs, to their attendant political causes, and it's going to be a force to be reckoned with in 2022 and beyond. Um, so I, I don't have as much faith in these sort of um, unifying powers of comedy in terms of how the right has been activating it lately.
0: I'm sorry. I mean, that's reasonable, <laughs> and I didn't mean to ask the question in like okay. leading way. But uh, I'll keep in mind that uh, sketch comedy was published in 2019, uh, and Correct. you know, <laughs> during the optimistic Trump years. No, but I know you like it did. It did. It, it's a year feels. Those years feel. <clears throat> yeah, I was. So yeah. I was finishing
1: sketch comedy as we were emerging. Like I, I saw the light at the end of the tunnel. I, I hoped and expected 2020 would be this much different thing that would lead us out into a new cultural moment away from the the Trump years. That's why I sounded that note of optimism at the end of sketch comedy. But honestly, part of the uh, motivation for writing about right-wing comedy was that Matt and I noticed, wow, instead of things being different post-Trump, these right-wing folks seem to be weaponizing comedy for their own purposes and Uh, this is something we have to account for and guard against.
0: Well, I think that I'm very excited to read your new book. I learned a ton from your old one and, but it's, it's, it's evergreen. Um, it is, it is, it's past, but not in the rearview mirror. It is just your, your first excellent contribution. And, uh, I want to give you an opportunity to plug any preview, any forthcoming work. You have the book coming out in May, uh, where, where can people get it? Are you doing any more events for it that you'd like us to, to know about?
1: Yeah. You can catch me at the comedy store. I'm going to be opening for Richard <laughs> Jenny. i no, no,
0: no. I think, you, yeah. I think you've, uh,
1: uh, done that nicely for me. Uh, that's not funny how the right makes comedy work for them is going to be out from the university of California press in may. It's available for pre-order from all the places you get books from. Um, we really hope that you will check it out and use it as a bridge to talk to your family, friends who might think differently politically from you and at least find the common ground of uh, comedy, asking them why they find, say, Greg Gutfeld funny and uh, using that at least to start a conversation.
0: I'm going to I'm gonna send a copy to my personal friend. Uh, his name is Tucker. He's on TV sometimes. I don't know uh, if you've ever heard of him, but I think, you, I think he'll really like it. He'll, he'll um. throw
1: it on a pile of books to burn, I'm sure. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much, Nick, for joining me today. Uh, you've been listening to Nick Marks uh, about his book, Sketch Comedy, Identity, Reflexivity, in American Television. Get a copy. Get your library to get a copy. I'm Annie Burke, and this is New Books in Film at the New Books Network. Thanks so much.